everyone. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. We want to start today's episode off with a huge thank you to all of you for the insane response to the first part of our series. Honestly, this story means a lot to both of us, and it feels really good to hear that our listeners thought that we did it justice. Mm-hmm. And just due to the fact that we want to fill this episode with as much info as possible, we're not going to be doing a recap. So if you feel like you need one, make sure you check out last week's episode before listening. With all of that being said, we are truly excited to bring you part two of this harrowing series. Yes, and we are fully aware that last week's episode was about as daisy and sunshine filled as we're probably ever going to get on this podcast. We really wanted to focus on not only the luxury of the ship, but the level of comfort and safety that its passengers and crew felt. Because this isn't the story of a bunch of people going into a dangerous situation and it ending badly. It's the story of 2,240 people, most of whom had no reason to ever see something like this coming. Today, we are going to be covering the sinking of the Titanic. And this is going to be a difficult episode. We want to warn you all right off the bat. At the end of the day, more than 1,500 human beings, each with their own story, would not make it out of the freezing cold water of the Atlantic Ocean alive. Like we said last week, we will be sharing stories of the passengers throughout the series, and today will be no different. And a super friendly reminder that we are available on all podcast platforms, as well as YouTube, where we hang out every Saturday at 12 p.m. MST and discuss the cases in real time. So make sure you follow or subscribe wherever you're listening and turn on those notifications so you don't miss a single episode. All right, let's get to it. Okay, so we mentioned last week, other than a few hiccups upon launching, the trip had been pretty uneventful. They were so confident that a lifeboat drill was actually canceled by Captain Smith himself. Everyone felt as if the maiden voyage was off to a great start and would be a huge success. Everyone, except those who knew about the coal fire or the fact that the ship almost crashed into another before they even boarded it. And they do say that bad things happen in threes. Very true. The night of April 14th, 1912 started off like any other. The sky was clear and the ocean was calm. However, the Titanic had received a number of reports from other ships of iceberg sightings. The first warning of bergs, growlers, and field ice came at 0900 hours from the RMS Coronia. Captain Smith acknowledged it and ordered the ship to proceed. At 1342, a report was relayed from the Greek ship Athenia, which said that they had been passing icebergs and large quantities of ice. Interestingly enough, this message was never actually relayed to Captain Smith, and we aren't quite sure why. It's believed that it was forgotten about because the radio operators were busy working on broken equipment. The SS Californian made a report of three large bergs at 1930 hours, and a little over two hours later, the Mesaba reported that they saw much heavy pack ice and great number large icebergs, also field ice. This message, too, was never relayed to the captain. So you're probably all wondering at this point how exactly something like that was allowed to happen. Well, apparently, the radio operator, who is a man by the name of Jack Phillips, was kept incredibly busy trying to keep up with the amount of messages that passengers were wanting transmitted to the relay station at Cape Race in Newfoundland. This was just one of the many things that would set in place the action of events that are so famously known today. 
The radios had broken the day before, which caused the backlog to grow and passengers to get impatient and upset passengers were just something that the Titanic couldn't have. And that wasn't all. Due to a mix-up, none of the lookouts had been given binoculars for the trip. Not that they would have done them any good that night anyway. It was pitch black. All you could see was the lights from the ship and the stars in the sky. The water was said to be so calm that survivors later described it as being glass-like. And that's something that we know now can often be a sign of pack ice. Also, the lack of movement in the water made it so they had even less of a chance of seeing the iceberg because there was nothing visible splashing against it. At 22.30, another message was received from the SS Californian saying, Say, old man, we are stopped and surrounded by ice. To this, Jack Phillips responded, Shut up, shut up, I'm working Cape Race. (laughs) I mean, I get that he was under pressure to, you know, make sure these messages were happening, but it's like, buddy, there's a time and a place to be listening to certain things. It's so unfortunate because you would not want to be in this guy's position. Absolutely not. That's incredibly stressful. It really is. The crew was made aware of reports of ice, but they continued to travel at only two knots short of the maximum speed. Their priority was getting to the destination on time. And while this may come off as an extremely stupid decision to some of us, it was actually standard maritime practice. Fifth Officer Harold Lowe, who would survive the sinking, later described the procedure being to... Go ahead and depend on the lookouts in the crow's nest and the watch on the bridge to pick up the ice to avoid hitting it. And honestly, they just didn't see icebergs as a huge threat. Ships during that time were often driven at full speed or close to it, and any reports of danger were looked at as warnings rather than something that they really needed to act on. Before Edward Smith became Captain Smith, he was reported as saying he could not... Imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. You... You can't put this much confidence into something like this. (laughs) Like, at the end of the day, we're dealing with nature, and it always has a way of catching us off guard. I mean, again, this sheer hubris and arrogance is stunning. Like, you cannot tempt Mother Nature like this. Have none of these people heard of Murphy's Law? Anything that can go wrong is bound to go wrong. The majority of the passengers were fast asleep when the Titanic began to approach the iceberg. Bridge command had passed from 2nd Officer Charles Lightoller to 1st Officer William Murdoch. At 23.30, the lookouts on the crow's nest, Frederick Fleet and Reginald Lee, who stood 95 feet above the deck, spotted something on the horizon but didn't make much of it. Incidentally, this was around the time the ship entered a place literally called Iceberg Alley. At 23.39, Fleet spotted an iceberg in their path. They rang the warning bell and phoned 6th Officer James Moody and declared, Iceberg, right ahead. Moody thanked him and relayed the message to Murdoch. He ordered hard a starboard, which is essentially the opposite of what they do now. It was reported by 4th Officer Joseph Boxhall that Murdoch told Captain Smith that he would attend to hard a port around the iceberg, which basically means swinging the bow around the obstacle and then the stern so that both sides would avoid colliding with it. Not only was this a complicated maneuver, it was something that the ship just couldn't do quickly. The center turbine couldn't be reversed, so they had to actually stop it and the central propeller. 
Sadly, this affected the efficiency of the rudders and the ship couldn't even turn properly. If they had attempted to turn at full speed, they may have even missed the iceberg by a few feet. They were able to avoid a head-on collision, instead hitting it from the side of the ship. An underwater piece of ice scraped along the starboard side and chunks of ice fell along the decks. This was only 30 seconds after Frederick Fleet had called to report the sighting. Five minutes after the ship hit the iceberg, its engines were stopped and it began to drift slowly south in the Labrador Current. We're really lucky to have found some passenger accounts of when the ship first hit the iceberg. They really show kind of the overall nonchalant feeling that a lot of people had at first. Edith Louise Rosenbaum Russell, a first-class passenger, would later describe her initial reaction to the incident. Just before going to my stateroom, A11, there was a bump. As I turned the handle of my room, there was another bump. As I got into my room, there was a third bump. One of these bumps, like little pushes, nothing violent. I slipped on a coat over my white satin evening dress and went right out from my own stateroom because my stateroom had a door leading to the promenade deck. As I got out onto the promenade deck, I saw a large gray, what looked to me like a building floating by. But that building kept bumping along the rail, and as it bumped, it sliced off bits of ice, which fell all over the deck. We picked up the ice and started playing snowballs. We thought it was fun. We asked the officers if there was any danger, and they said, Oh no, nothing at all, nothing at all, nothing at all. Just a mere nothing. We just hit an iceberg. Oh, man. Can I you... can't... <sighs> The fact that they were like, oh, isn't this is jolly good old fun. Let us play some snowballs. But I and think it's like, oh, this thing just ruined this ship. You can <laughs> tell how sheltered these people probably were. Because this is Edith Louise Rosenbaum Russell, okay? Like, <laughs> she's probably had a pretty good life. Like, she probably thinks, well, you know, I'm on this unsinkable ship. I've spent, like, all this money on this ticket. Like, I am unstoppable. Yes, that that's, I mean, I, it's crazy to me that they were so, I, I don't want to use the word gullible because that makes them sound stupid. And I'm not sure they're not stupid, but the marketing behind this ship fooled yes, a lot of people. That, and like, that's just it. You're absolutely right. It really, it's, it's not their fault because if you get told from all of these sources that you completely trust, hey, this ship isn't sinkable. It's the greatest thing on the planet. You're probably going to believe them if enough people say it. Yeah, absolutely. They fooled a lot of people. I mean, to be fair, even the shipbuilders didn't expect it to sink on the maiden voyage, but it's yep. just like, oh my god, all these people really believed. I mean, really, this is the worst case scenario that could have happened. No one saw this Literally, coming. yeah, nobody at all. George Brayton, another first-class passenger, had a much less relaxing account of the whole thing. He was reported as saying, A number of us who were enjoying the crisp air were promenading about the deck. Captain Smith was on the bridge when the first cry from the lookout came that there was an iceberg ahead. It may have been 30 feet high when I saw it. It was possibly 200 yards away and dead ahead. Captain Smith shouted some orders. A number of us promenaders rushed to the bow of the ship. When we saw he could not fail to hit it, we rushed to the stern. Then came a crash, and the passengers were panic-stricken. So I find this interesting, and I was giving this kind of some thought, because I 
really like these accounts are completely different. Mm-hmm. And one of them's really playful and the other's like it's alarming, it's scary. And I wonder if it's because one account is from a man while the other one's from a woman. Like I wonder if they were just downplaying anything cuz they didn't want to like panic all the rich ladies. I mean, it's it definitely an interesting thought and I think there might be something to it, but I think probably more than anything. Actually, you know what? It literally just occurred to me. I wonder if like like you say, the women were perhaps a little more sheltered. They'd been told by all the men that, you know, men must be right, that this thing could yeah. sink. But perhaps some of the men had already been in the Navy or had been to war already. Not, world, obviously, at this point, World War One or World War Two. But there's, I mean, there's always They'd wars going on. They've been to war, yeah. Um, and maybe they thought, hey, wait a second here. What's happening? You know, they're a little more ready to sort of jump to conclusions, perhaps. Less sheltered, right? Yeah, but I mean, for the most part, I think most people were just... It, it never occurred to them once that they are, could be in any danger. And you know what? I think you and I could discuss this forever, but that, <laughs> it, 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 it's just that simple. It mm-hmm. never occurred to them. Yeah, There's no rhyme or reason behind it. It just wasn't a thought. Mm-hmm. So the lookouts were too high up to actually feel the collision. And at first they were relieved. They thought everything was fine. They had no way of knowing that the ship had just hit an iceberg that left a 300 foot gash just below the ship's waterline. Captain Smith and Thomas Andrews went to see the impacted area for themselves. When he saw the damaged, he issued an all stop order. Five compartments were already filled with water. You may remember from part one that we mentioned the ship was built to stay afloat in a situation like this, but that it could only support four flooded compartments. At this time, a six had already begun to fill. This caused the ship to begin to pitch downwards, which filled the compartments even faster. As each compartment filled, the watertight doors closed, causing anyone unlucky enough to be working inside to drown. Thomas Andrews estimated that the Titanic would be able to stay afloat for no more than an hour and a half. At the end of the night, the Titanic would exceed his expectations and stay afloat for almost three hours. The pumps were built to work with 2,000 tons of water an hour, but after the impact, there were 2,000 tons coming in every five minutes. A call for help was issued and the captain ordered that the lifeboats that he knew would only accommodate one-third of his passengers on board to be loaded. It's also worth noting that the distress call that they placed actually led the would-be rescuers about 13 nautical miles away from where they actually were. I can't even begin to imagine the sense of dread that they all had at this point. Mm -hmm. They, They went into this with an almost harmful level of confidence and, i would say yeah, yeah right harmful like, is definitely the right word yeah and i mean to go from that to the realization that a huge amount of people that you're responsible for are about to die like without a doubt <sighs> must have been just devastating well if you think about it even if somehow the titanic was able to survive this The first six compartments had already locked down and filled, which means anybody in them died, regardless of whether it sank or not. Do you know what I mean? So at the very least, workers died on this ship. And for it's just, oh, man, it's frustrating is what it is. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking because it really is. 
At five minutes past midnight and 25 minutes after the ship had hit the iceberg, Captain Smith ordered that the lifeboats be deployed and that they start evacuating. Passengers had already begun to awaken due to the eerie quiet caused by the engines being shut off. I'd imagine that the silence, after days of sort of becoming accustomed to the white noise of the engines, would have been so eerie, especially when the sea was so still that night. And then, of course, you know, you've heard these this like loud bang or bump, and then all of a sudden, dead silence. That would be terrifying. I Absolutely. Would think. Mailroom workers rushed to save the 400,000 pieces of mail being carried on the ship as the room flooded with freezing cold water. And this reminds me of people working in the Twin Towers on September 11th. Uh, who were found by firefighters still at their desks working. I heard about one lady who was found as her boss was yelling at her about like some nonsense as she was trying to explain like, hey, I need to leave. And he was yelling at her about like a meeting that he had to have booked. Jesus, like, guy. The, the fact that so many of us have been essentially conditioned to put our lives at risk for our jobs, it's so sad. I can't wrap my mind around it. And the other thing is, too, because the Titanic didn't actually have a way to address all of the passengers at once via a public address system, stewards were told to go door to door to door to wake up sleeping passengers and get everyone to the boat deck. This is another time where first class was heavily prioritized over second or third. First class stewards only had to look after a few people, so they helped them get dressed and they got them to the decks. Second-class passengers had their doors basically thrown open and were told to get out as fast as possible and put on their life jackets. Third-class passengers were basically told, hey, we're sinking, go, and were told to figure it out for themselves. At this time, not all of the passengers were told that the ship was sinking. 20 minutes later, Captain Smith amended his order saying that the women and children would be prioritized. The first lifeboat would be lowered a little more than half an hour after contact with the iceberg. That being said, they would allow men on board if no women were around. But honestly, it doesn't really seem like a huge effort was made to locate women and children to put into said boats. Seriously, a huge amount of the victims were women and children, and the majority of the lifeboats went out barely filled. At first, the majority of the passengers actively avoided getting into the lifeboats. The quiet decks where many of them had enjoyed their tea and their coffee had turned chaotic. The reason for all of the noise was because the ship's boilers had been running at full capacity only an hour prior. They were now completely stopped. Because of this, steam had to be released from them, otherwise there was a huge risk of explosion happening in the boiler rooms themselves. And honestly, they had no reason to think that the ship didn't have enough lifeboats unless they actually went out and counted them. And obviously, an unsinkable ship, most people probably wouldn't even think to go do that. Most of them honestly thought the entire thing was a big overreaction and actually laughed when they were told to go up on deck with their life jackets on. And can I just also point out that, I mean, if you've seen the movie, you've, you kind of recognize them, but they're not the life jackets we think of today. No. Um, they were these sort of big white 
canvas vests that were stuffed with cork. So obviously it helps you float. So they were big, they were bulky, they didn't like zip up or anything, you know? So they probably all felt like, oh, I'm not putting on my life jacket. I'm going to look silly. Like, oh, absolutely. And that was something that I got to see when the exhibit was here. They had a life jacket on display. Mm -hmm. And it really is like, it's, it's clunky. <laughs> Nowadays on like planes and stuff, you see like the yellow ones that you like pull the toggle and they expand or whatever. But like we were a very long way from what they had originally in those days. Oh, absolutely. They did quickly realize that things were quite serious. Lawrence Beasley, an English teacher looking for adventure, would later describe the sound on the deck as... A harsh, deafening boom that made conversation difficult. If one imagines 20 locomotives blowing off steam in a low key, it would give some idea of the unpleasant sound that met us as we climbed on the top deck. The noise was so loud that the crew had to use hand signals to communicate. And for those of you wondering, Lawrence Beasley survived because lucky lifeboat number 13 had no women and children near it. He was told that he could board it just as it launched and he threw himself into the boat at the last minute. This man was one of the luckiest people on board this ship, I swear. Seriously, so shortly after he jumped onto the lifeboat, he managed to avoid death once again when lifeboat number 15 almost landed on their boat. At the very, very last second, someone cut the rope and no one was injured. Nine weeks later, he would write a book about his experience on the ship. We'll get to more about the lifeboats in a little bit. Around this time, the Carpathia received a distress signal from the Titanic that read, Come at once. We have struck a berg. It's a CQD, old man. CQD stands for Come Quick Danger, which was later replaced by the better-known SOS. The Carpathia, which was a part of Cunard Liners, one of their competitors, changed their course to help them. However, it would take them more than four hours to arrive. It was around this time that the location of the ship was looked at again, and they were able to figure out where it actually was. Meanwhile, the steam had left the boilers and things on the deck quieted down. Musicians began playing to entertain those waiting for their place on a lifeboat. And we just want to take a couple of minutes to talk about these brave men. None of them would survive, and their final moments were spent keeping those around them feeling at least some semblance of comfort. One second-class survivor was reported as saying, Many brave things were done that night, but none were more brave than those done by men playing minute after minute as the ship settled quietly lower and lower into the sea. The music they played served alike as their own immortal requiem and their right to be recalled on the scrolls of undying fame. William Theodore Ronald Braley was born in Walthamstow, actually played on the Carpathia prior to this, which is where he met 20-year-old cellist Roger Bricou. They were recruited together to play on the Titanic. Roger Bricou was one of those people who picked up on music at a very early age. He was the only French musician on board, and interestingly enough, he was not declared legally dead until the year 2000. Isn't that wild? It's actually, I mean, so many of these stories are sad, but this one made, I don't know, it hit me in the heart because mm -hmm. he was declared a deserter by the French army in 1913, a year after his death, and he was not given a memorial or any recognition at all until the Association Francaise du Titanic made huge efforts for him to get the acknowledgement that he deserved. A few years after this, a memorial was finally created for him. Poor guy. 
I know. That oh. it makes me so sad. Seriously. This whole, this probably, I mean, I say this often, but this is a sad episode. This is one of the more sad episodes we've done, I think. I think so, too. John Law Hume, also known as Jock, was a Scottish violinist who left behind a pregnant fiancé to take a job on board the Titanic. He was very, very eager about the opportunity. It had been given to him due to his reputation as a wonderful musician. He was one of the few musicians who had his body recovered and was buried at the Titanic plot in Fairview Cemetery in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Can we please add that to our future Titanic road trip list? I think it's very important that we go pay our respects at some point to these folks. Absolutely. And something that we want to add is that on April 30th, this, oh my God, you guys, I'm going to read about (laughs) this in a sec because it pissed me off when I learned this. (sighs) His father received a bill from the company that employed his now deceased son. They were asking for 14 shillings and 7 pence to cover the cost of his uniform. We want to just run that by you again. God. This man died playing music to give people some sense of comfort in their final moments. And this is something that we know happened for a fact. Like, he was seen doing this by multiple people. And they sent his father a letter for the uniform that he died in. I swear to God, this made my blood pressure, like, fly through the roof when I read it. Like, allow me to just rage for a second with all of you. Please do. This man gave his life to comfort people on a sinking ship that was supposed to be unsinkable, and they had the audacity, no, the gall, to try and bill his family for his uniform. I tell you, there is a special place in hell for whoever sent that letter without thinking twice about it. I could not agree with you more. That is (sighs) disgusting. Like, I'm sorry, if that doesn't make your blood boil, I need you to re-listen to that again and process it, because Yeah, it's just one of the many things that make me angry about this entire story. (laughs) Yep. Oh, God. 23-year-old Georges Alexander Krins was a Belgian violinist whose family had relocated to France. He had originally wanted to join the army, but was talked out of it by his parents. He was the bandmaster of a smaller trio that would play by the Café Francais. His body would never be recovered. 28-year-old John Clark was a bassist who lived with his grandparents. After this voyage, he planned on continuing to play on other ships and had hoped to play again on the Titanic. His body was recovered and he's also buried in Halifax. Percy Taylor, a cellist, the oldest of the group at 40 years old, he was married and his wife was waiting for him to come home. Sadly, he never would. His body has never been found. John Wesley Woodward was 32 and was an incredibly talented cellist. A newspaper reported the following about him after his death. His cello playing was always marked by refinement and musicianship. On several occasions, he exhibited brilliant qualities as a solo exentant, but he excelled rather as an orchestral player than as a soloist. His orchestral playing was uniformly sound, steady and reliable, while these same invaluable qualities, conjoined with much natural taste and a cultured style, enabled him to appear to utmost advantage in chamber music. He was a thorough and conscientious musician whose playing, whether in solos or concerted work, was always interesting 
and always enjoyable. And if you need to translate that, because it took me a second to translate it in my brain, I think it just means he was a fucking great musician. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I think well, this is a great example of how much the way that we speak has changed since 1912, because a lot Very of this is much. like it's difficult to read, especially like when we have to say it out loud. Yeah, it's I, I can't say that it's hard necessarily to read, but it's hard to kind of wrap your your lips around. It, it doesn't roll off the sense. tongue properly. No, it just doesn't. No. And of course, there was 33-year-old Wallace Hartley, the band leader. He would become famous for leading the group while they played as the ship sank. His body would be recovered two weeks after the sinking of the Titanic. His violin case was still strapped to him. And we found a really, really interesting note about that violin. It had been given back to his fiancée in July of 1912, but when she passed away in 1939, her sister donated it to the Bridlington Salvation Army, and it was later given to a violin teacher. The teacher gave it to someone she knew who left it in her attic where it would stay for 70 years. One day, her son came across it. The violin was kept in a leather case with the initials WHH on it. It bore an engraving on it, which read, For Wallace, on the occasion of our engagement, from Maria. However, this wasn't enough, and further testing was done. Seven years of evidence gathering was done by a Wiltshire-based auction house, and CT scans were able to show 3D images of the inside. In 2013, it was confirmed that this was indeed the same violin he played on the Titanic. It now resides in a Tennessee museum dedicated to the victims of the sinking and is worth an estimated $1.7 million U.S. Now, we know that was quite the sidebar, but we wanted to take the time to acknowledge these men who were truly selfless in their last moments. And now, back to the Titanic itself. At 45 minutes past midnight, lifeboat number 7 was lowered. It carried 27 people on board, which was far less than the 65 that it could hold. Crewmen were worried that the cables would snap when the boat was at full capacity, and this was intentionally done due to that worry. Meanwhile, passengers were still uneasy about leaving the ship. In their mind, an unsinkable ship was far more safe than a small boat in the middle of the ocean. And I think, again, it's what you said. It's that marketing. It's powerful. Because even in in those final moments, they're still saying it can't sink. Yeah, it's literally going down at a fairly rapid rate at yes. this point. And they're like, nah, it couldn't. It couldn't be me. Couldn't be me going yeah. down on the unsinkable nah, ship. not me. Oh, man. Because that's the thing with these tragic, massive incidents is that the people involved in them are like, no, there's no way that this is happening to me. What What are the chances that this would happen to me? Like, yep, exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, you're absolutely right. At this point in time, the Titanic had set off the first of eight distress rockets, hoping to capture the attention of a ship that they had spotted less than 10 nautical miles away. They also attempted to contact them via telegraph or Morse lamp, but all attempts failed. That ship was later thought to be illegally hunting seals and likely wouldn't have even approached another ship if they saw it. There were reports from the Californian of seeing the distress rockets, but they were unable to figure out where they had come from. The second lifeboat to be lowered was number five. This did not go quite as smoothly as the last boat. Two desperate men jumped into the boat and they injured a female passenger. And of course, there was lifeboat number six, which contained the one, the only, unsinkable Molly Brown, who we promised we would talk about this week. 
Prior to her boarding the Titanic, Margaret Brown had been on a trip to Egypt, Rome, and Paris with her daughter Helen and her friends JJ and Madeline Astor. But she had booked an early ticket back on the Titanic after she found out that her grandson was sick. She was laying in her bed reading when she felt a crash at her window. The impact was so strong that it threw her out of bed. She heard a commotion outside of her room and went to investigate. She gave her accounts in an interview at the Newport Herald. She was quoted as saying, I again looked out and saw a man whose face was blanched, his eyes protruding, wearing the look of a haunted creature. He was gasping for breath and in an undertone he gasped, get your lifesaver. She helped a few passengers get their life jackets on and then she was put onto lifeboat number six. There were 21 women, two men, and a young boy on board. The women in the lifeboat worked together to row for hours. And it wasn't that the two men were incapable of rowing. It was Frederick Fleet, who we mentioned before, and quartermaster Robert Hitchens, who were commanding the Titanic when it hit the iceberg. Hitchens was quite a guy. Uh, Apparently, he refused to go back and look for survivors, saying that it wasn't worth it to go out and find only, quote-unquote, stiff. Molly Brown threatened to throw him overboard herself. At a girl. I'd have punched him in the mouth. Seriously. This is another one of those people that pissed me off in this story. I, uh, they... I don't know, guys. I'm going off on tangents today. I'm, sp- if I'm feeling spicy today. You should. But like, like, that's uh, low. I And it's like, are you just an asshole or Probably. are you a coward? Like, I, well, you know, they kind of go hand in hand if you ask me. But really? Anyway, <laughs> I digress. Ugh. Among the survivors on Lifeboat 6 were the Baxters, who we talked about last week. <sighs> okay. We have some stuff to go over here. Yes, we sure do. Yes, we sure they, do. We have an update. So I actually messaged Charlotte in literal tears when I found this out. <laughs> and, I, and I'm not one to cry about stuff like this. But Same, this... but oh, guys. Okay. Quig Baxter, who we talked about last week, mm-hmm. he carried his mother up the grand staircase when they were being evacuated. She had been sick for most of the trip. He put his mother and his sister into the lifeboats along with another very special woman in his life. We didn't realize last week that Quig was engaged. His fiance was a Belgian cabaret singer named Bertha Main. Her stage name was Bella Viley. She met Quig while he was in Brussels, and the two immediately fell in love. He convinced her to come to Canada with him, and she boarded the Titanic under a fake name. When she got on the lifeboat, she was devastated about leaving his side, and Molly Brown herself actually convinced her to stay on the boat. After the ship sunk, she would stay with the Baxter family for a little bit, but eventually she went back to singing, this time in Paris. She would never get married again. In her older days, she would often tell stories about how she was on the Titanic with a Canadian millionaire who she was in love with, and no one believed her. And she would tell this to all of her family members and everyone who would listen about this. And they were like, sure, Grandma. Yeah, sure, 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 Grandma. And uh, after she passed away, they they were going through her things and they found a shoebox full of letters and diary entries. And that was when they found out that she'd been telling the truth about Quig that whole time. It really broke my heart when you told me about them because we slightly you know, made some assumptions about Quig last week, not knowing any of this previously. And this, I, guys, I might be 
freaking, you know, shove down my tears, never cry in public kind of thing. But I do love love. And this really broke my heart that they were so close and then this happened to them. Like, they could have had a wonderful life together. Yep, absolutely. Ugh. And you Goddamn. know, it goes to show that you see these numbers and this number of how many people died on this ship. But mm -hmm. with every single name, there's a story. Yes, and I mean, it really shows brave and truly good people that were on the Titanic that helped people and put others before they put themselves. And then on the flip side of that, you get the other end of the spectrum where you see how uh, cowardly and how mean people get in shitty situations. Definitely. It brings out who you really are. It sure does. At 1 a.m., lifeboat number three was lowered with 39 people on board, 12 of them being the ship's crew. It's around this time that water began to reach the grand staircase. Lifeboat number one was launched 10 minutes later. And an interesting note, this boat was a lot smaller and it was designed to be used in emergencies such as a person overboard. There are 12 people on board this boat. It had the ability to hold 40. One of the reasons it's believed that this boat had so few people was due to good old-fashioned bribery. Along with seven crew members, the boat was occupied by first-class passengers Sir Cosmo Edmund Duff Gordon and his wife Lucy. That's one hell of a name. <laughs> oh yeah. Apparently, he paid each crew member five pounds so that they could replace their lost items, which makes him sound super nice. But in reality, it's more likely that he gave them the money in exchange for not letting anyone else on board. What a dickhead. <laughs> I, I, We said this. I think a lot of the time we really see who someone is during a time of great stress like this. It really is interesting how many people were just total pieces of garbage while others like were heroic. They were heroes. And again, right here is another great example of that. At 1.10 a.m., lifeboat number eight was launched with 28 passengers on board. Isidore Strauss and his wife Ida were offered a spot on this boat. We spoke about them last week. He was the owner of Macy's. Isidore didn't feel right about getting on the boat when there were children who needed to be saved. Because of this, he refused to board, but he encouraged his wife to save herself. She reportedly responded to this with the words, Where you go, I go. The two returned to their cabin and would go down with the Titanic. And you may remember them from the heartbreaking scene of the old couple holding each other in bed while their ship sank in the 1997 movie. Next to launch was lifeboat number 10. On this boat was nine-week-old Milvina Dean, best known for being the last living survivor on the Titanic. She would pass away in 2009. Boat number nine was, unlike the others, nearly full with a whopping 56 passengers on board. Among them was the mistress of Benjamin Guggenheim, Leontine Aubert, and it was reported that Guggenheim and his valet, who we talked about last week, were both dressed in their finest attire. Guggenheim famously declared, We've dressed up in our best and are prepared to go down like gentlemen. Their bodies would never be recovered. By 125, the scene on the decks had descended into absolute chaos. It was very obvious that there weren't enough boats and people had become upset and rightfully very scared. 
As lifeboat number 14 was lowered into the water, desperate passengers still on the deck attempted to jump into the boat. Fifth officer Harold Lowe ended up firing his gun three times into the air to scare them away. Sadly, one of the reasons that so few third-class passengers survived was that they simply did not have access to this deck. Many had trouble finding their way around the confusing corridors and couldn't even find their way to the decks amongst the panic. Others attempted to make their way through the second-class exits, but were devastated to discover that they'd been locked inside with nowhere to go. This was reportedly due to a tragic miscommunication. And we mentioned that the crew prioritized getting women and children onto the lifeboats, but apparently this wasn't the case if you were in third class. In fact, more third class women and children died than survived, while the case was the opposite for their second and first class counterparts. To put this into perspective, only one of the 29 children in first and second class died. A two-year-old Canadian girl named Lorraine Allison. 53 of the 76 children in third class did not make it out of the ship alive. First officer William Murdoch is credited with getting people on board the lifeboats that he was responsible for in a much more organized fashion, therefore saving more lives. Unfortunately, he would end up going down with the ship. Around this time, the Olympic radioed the Titanic to ask if they were steering south to them. They didn't understand how serious the whole situation was. The Titanic responded saying, We are putting the women off in the boats. And again, the Olympic was one of the sister ships to the Titanic. They had absolutely no reason to believe that the ship was actually sinking. They still thought that it was unsinkable. Lifeboat number 12 was lowered down with around half of its seats full. However, this boat would later be filled with over 70 survivors. Jack Phillips continued to desperately send distress calls out, but with no luck. At 1.45 a.m., a collapsible lifeboat was lowered with the chairman of White Star Line, Bruce Ismay. This is something that he would never live down. He would go down in history as a coward for refusing to go down with a ship. Most believe that he helped as many people as he could onto the boat and then got on himself when he saw there was room. Although there are some who think that he wasn't as willing to help others and that he forced his way on board. We'll probably never really know the truth, but the choice he made that evening would haunt him for the rest of his life. John Jacob Astor and his pregnant wife Madeline, who you may remember from part one, approached a lifeboat. John helped his wife on board and asked second officer Lightoller for permission to go with her. Unfortunately, Lightoller was a very by-the-book kind of man, and he refused to let anyone but women and children aboard. John Astor accepted his fate and said goodbye to his wife. His body was never found. By 2 a.m., the ship had sunk so far that the propellers were visible above the waterline. At this time, the only boats available were a few small collapsible ones. Unfortunately, most of these boats flooded as they were dropped into the water, and the majority of those people did not survive. At this time, Captain Smith announced to the crew that it is every man for himself and that they were officially relieved of their duties. Captain Smith would famously go down with his ship and his body would never be found. At 2.17 a.m., Jack Phillips attempted to send a final distress signal. He would later make it to one of the overturned collapsible lifeboats, but he died of exposure shortly after. His body was also never found. A minute later, the lights on the Titanic all went out. The bow of the ship continued to sink, and the weight of this caused a huge amount of strain on the midsection of the ship, eventually causing it to snap in half between the third and fourth funnels. 
Experts would later determine that it took the bow section of the ship approximately six minutes to reach the ocean floor, despite the fact that it traveled at a whopping 48 kilometers per hour. And if you are a visual person, we'll be sharing a great video recreation of this up on our Patreon. As for the stern, it settled back into the water for a little bit and then it began to rise. It momentarily sat fully vertical and then it plunged into the ocean at around 3 a.m. And we want to end this with a quote from Philadelphia banker Robert Daniel, who we think described the events in a way that truly shows just how horrifying it all was. He said, Not until the last five minutes did the awful realization come that the end was at hand. The lights became dim and went out, but we could see. Slowly, ever so slowly, the surface of the water seemed to come towards us. So gradual was it that even after I had adjusted the life jacket about my body, it seemed a dream. Deck after deck was submerged. There was no lurching or grinding or crunching. The Titanic simply settled. I was far up on one of the top decks when I jumped. About me were others in the water. My bathrobe floated away and it was icily cold. I struck out at once. I turned my head and my first glance took in the people swarming on the Titanic's deck. Hundreds were standing there helpless to ward off approaching death. I saw Captain Smith on the bridge. My eyes seemingly clung to him. The deck from which I had leapt was immersed. The water had risen slowly and was now to the floor of the bridge. Then it was to Captain Smith's waist. I saw him no more. He died a hero. The bows of the ship were far beneath the surface, and to me, only the four monster funnels and the two masts were now visible. It was all over in an instant. The Titanic stern rose completely out of the water and then went up 30, 40, 60 feet into the air. Then, with her body slanting at an angle of 45 degrees, slowly the Titanic slipped out of sight. And that is where we are going to pick things up next week when we cover the aftermath of the sinking. <sighs> wow. It won't surprise me if I have a ton of Titanic-related nightmares by the time this episode comes out. I agree, because it's been really on my mind, all these different people, and I think knowing the story forever, I mean, who hasn't at this point, you know, you take it in, but it's like, oh, it's tragic, and all these people, and the ship sank. But then you go into each of their individual stories, and there's so many of them. We could have a whole freaking podcast about all of these different people. Absolutely. But it, I don't know, when you hear it from their perspective and they're talking about how it's going down, it, it really pulls on the heartstrings, I think. It really does. I mean, it's devastating. It's, mm -hmm. ugh, all right. <laughs> Thanks for staying on this sad, yes, sad journey know, with this, us, this guys. This is such a sad series. It really, really is. And I mean, we don't often get happy endings around here, but uh, this one is just uh, <laughs> definitely, it, like you said, it really does tug on the heartstrings because it, mm -hmm. it's hard not to hear this and feel really freaking sad. Yes, I completely <laughs> agree. And once again, we just want to thank all of you for the support on this series so far. And if you enjoyed part two, please consider sharing it on social media and interacting with all of our posts whenever you see them. It honestly really does help us a lot. And another thing that does help us is rating us five stars. If you can, wherever you listen, that really helps. Absolutely. That's the kind of stuff that helps new folks find us. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we also have some new merch coming soon and we added in fun mystery sticker packs to our store. Thank you to those of you who have picked one of those up. We really appreciate it. 
And as always, please consider checking out the old Patreon. We have a ton of extra content there and memberships start at three bucks a month. Yeah, and a lot of that extra content is going to be Titanic related this month. Yeah, all of that goes towards helping us grow and we appreciate any and all support, whether it's Etsy, Patreon, or listening to the podcast or retweeting us. It all helps. And speaking of Patreon, we just want to thank our Grim VIPs and up. You betcha. So, once again, a gigantic thank you to Johnny, Lisa, Pink Flamingo 20, Mudkip, Hillary, Brian, and Bob. To keep up with the latest Grim Curriculum news, make sure you follow us on all the social media platforms. We're going to be linking all that good stuff below, too, along with our personal stuff. Thanks for listening, guys. This has been The, the Grim, Grim Curriculum. Curriculum. Okay, so uh, Tasmanian devils give birth to about 40 to 50 babies at a time. Uh, but they Jesus only... Christ! <laughs> yeah, and uh, they only have four nipples, so only four of them survive, and the mommy eats the rest as snacks. Oh my god! Bye. Bye! <laughs>